0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 1st, we are studying James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Where is true treasure found? The riches of this world will rust, rot, and burn Only the heavenly treasure found in Christ Jesus lasts forever, so where will you place your trust? To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Harrison Goodman. Pastor Goodman serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Goodman, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: We get started this morning. Pastor Goodman, we're nearing the end of this short yet insightful, very very precise epistle. What kinds of context, in the immediate context, and the book as a whole, maybe even the, the scriptures as a whole, do we need to know looking at the verses we've got today?
1: Right. So we're just beginning chapter five of James, which is maybe almost an arbitrary distinction because this epistle being as short as it was, and also that we recognize the chapters were added in later by us. This is one epistle that, that uh, James would write uh, as he ends up chapter four and he begins chapter five. He's speaking uh, about um, your arrogance, the boasting that's evil, the, the, the idea that we can plan for our future and somehow escape uh, our, 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 What's coming for us if we only invest enough or, or try enough, and also uh, the idea that that we would sort of build something for us uh, today that that we can somehow use to uh, again build for us uh, our own little tower of Babel of sorts, our, our own little path to to great reward
0: The matter of, of planning for the future as he he brings up, in the previous text, I think is, is a very key connection to make because he's going to talk a lot about riches and, and riches could be, they don't, they don't have to be, but riches very much can be one of the ways that we would try to secure our future. If we have enough riches, then great future will be secure. That, that seems to be a a pretty key connection to make between those two texts? Where where are we looking for security? Where are we going to find hope for the future? Is it going to be in Christ Jesus, our Lord, or is it going to be in, in riches? And that previous text, I really think is a good connection to make in that vein.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the idea that we would try and build for ourselves something that would endure, it's always a first commandment issue, um, even when it sort of takes the form of, of the seventh commandment theft. Uh, this is always a, an issue of, can I get for myself enough that I won't need God anymore? You see it all the way back, uh, even in well, the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, uh, with all of creation, all of paradise given to them, still desire more—that they would be like God, that they would be able to grab something for themselves, even as part from you know the tree of life that would let them live. Uh, every single time we grab hold of of mammon, of of wealth in this fashion, it's it's always a question of idolatry. What are you putting your fear, love, and trust in? Is it the God who gave you this creation and promises to work good within it? Or is it the creation itself that you sort of need to grab away from God to control because you don't really trust that he's going to do his job?
0: Mm-hmm. I, at the keeping that centered in the matter of idolatry is going to be important for us. In a couple of respects, it's going to help us understand, I think, why riches in particular— are warned against very strongly here and in other places in the scriptures, but it will also protect us against some sort of self-justification. If we don't see that idol in our lives, if, if that is not one of the idols that we struggle with, we're still going to be able to take this text and, and recognize idolatry in other areas. And so centering it in, in that I think will help us from falling off on either side uh, on the one side that we would avoid the error of of thinking that I can just do whatever I want with my money and it's not going to affect me. Well, no, we're going to have a warning against that. But on the other side to think, well, if I'm not tempted to trust in money, that then I, I must be okay. And I can just sort of skip over these verses to whatever comes next. The matter of idolatry really helps us take this text and, and apply it rightly to avoid self-justification on either side. Absolutely. So with that, let's go ahead and and read the text. We're in James chapter five, beginning at verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. That is the text for today James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Once again, Pastor Goodman, James does not pull any punches. He he uses some of the f- most fiery language in in the scriptures in the way that he preaches here. Very very vivid images that he puts before us today. So, he he starts come now you rich. You you rich. Now, who who's James talking to here? A lot of times we'll hear him address brothers. We see it before, we see it after. Who's who's he got in mind with you, Rich?
1: Right. I think that we almost have to carry the end of John along with us all the way even through James, uh, that these things were written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and so by believing have life in his name. That this is given to those who should believe in Jesus. Um, the idea that James would sort of be speaking to the brothers, the Christians at the end of chapter four, and then take a quick little time out and just yell at rich people only to resume talking to the people who actually wants to talk to the brothers. Uh, It it seems to me uh, that that wouldn't have necessarily made the cut, especially with um, as many references to the Sermon on the Mount, to other major tenets of our faith that are sort of tucked within this, I have to believe that uh, this is of unbelievers, but I don't believe that it's necessarily for them. I I believe that even as uh, James addresses the rich, he does so in a way that sort of directs those who would hear both the law and the gospel to see the futility of chasing after mammon, uh, to to start to recognize the the futility of of turning towards wealth. uh, And by turning towards wealth, turning away from Christ. Uh, Even as the language is so descriptive, uh, you almost start to see real-life parables played out in little deaths. You can start to envision those who would sort of gather up for themselves riches on earth only to see them not be able to save them from the last great enemy death, but also sometimes even just fall apart right before their eyes. Uh, this is something that Luther actually does in the large catechism as well. In the seventh commandment, uh, he, he, he reminds us that, you know, from our own experience, we've seen this uh, fulfilled daily before our eyes that no stolen or dishonestly acquired possession Thrives. Uh, he he references those who would uh, gather up, gather up, and gather up at, at the expense of their neighbor, only to watch all of these things fall apart. And, and he points out that look of all the things that you thought would bring you peace and happiness and joy, it's only really left you with more misery, not not less. This is a, a just a call to recognize because it's not once you become a Christian you put away all sin or all even idols. It's that daily those things have to be ripped from your grasp. Daily old Adam has to drown that the new man would be raised up. And so daily I confront my mammon worship, even as I am called by the gospel. Uh, James, as he's writing this, he's pointing out not just to those people over there that God would purposely condemn as bad examples for you, Uh, not at all, but to all of us to to see the futility of chasing after mammon so that we would be dragged back to the one true gospel, which is Christ who was crucified and raised for you. Um, and, And this is a freeing thing as well. Uh, you, you watch the lack of peace and the lack of happiness that mounts as we chase after more and more money. Um, I, it was the philosopher who said more money, more problems, after all, in Biggie mm-hmm. Smalls. Uh, but it's it's more, it, it, it's that in watching the decay um, that that happens in this world, it, it sort of brings about uh, an Epicureanism, a, a, a futility of looking towards the future that uh well, it's all going to fall apart anyway, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. The idea that sort of embracing the fact that, yeah, these things might go away tomorrow, it actually leads me to care even less about my neighbor and even less about my God. And it just sort of encourages a selfishness that would tuck me further into myself and not instead of pulling me away from myself. Uh, in all of these things, uh, the idea that in seeking happiness from wealth and not finding it, uh, here James can actually start to point us towards those things that that will save. And this is what he does in this text, is he slowly sort of unravels all of the ways that we would put our trust in the wealth and riches and well, mammon of this world, he he points out all the ways they come undone, and ultimately, at last, leaves us with the gospel. Mm.
0: So, a, a couple of thoughts, then, Pastor Goodman. First, the these miseries. He he says, "Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you." It sounds like these, as as you're laying it out and and bringing up what Luther says in the Large Catechism, the miseries that are coming upon you are not only eternal. It's very easy for us to look upon. I mean to go directly there, that those who trust in wealth have eternal miseries awaiting them. But also that there is a, a temporal misery that awaits those who would trust in wealth. That that even in this life, as how did Luther put it, that, that the dishonestly gotten goods only I mean, they too would lead to the misery.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he would continue in the large catechism. They, they rake and scrape day and night and yet grow no richer at all. Uh, and again, it's one of those things we can sort of see glimpses of in our own lives. We can watch, you know, two people lose their jobs. And, and both cases, it's awful. But to the person who recognizes that there is a merciful God who is working all things for the good of those who love him, who counts his treasure among the heavens as opposed to among the earth, he he laments the loss of his job but he, he goes forth trusting the lord not lost everything but but uh, to the person who only has the wealth of this world he's trying harder and harder and he's just spinning his wheels and he's finding less peace not more for all his efforts
0: hmm. the other the other thought that we should probably pick up here right at the get go is this matter of you rich Now, what does this mean, you rich? We're we're talking to Christians, you've said. These these are Christians that it's intended for them to read. This is not for them over there, but it is for us. So you rich who have miseries coming, well— who then can be saved to ask the question the disciples ask?
1: Right. The rich man asks it too. And Jesus gives this verse that everybody seems to remember and nobody quite figures out that it's it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, but this is not a condemnation just for being wealthy. I mean, after all, Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy and counted among the believers, he himself uh, gave his own tomb to our Lord. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a question of, again, what is your trust in? Are you building something for yourself to get you from here to where you want to go? Or are you trusting in God? The danger doesn't come from the wealth, but the ability to simply put your trust in your own control. The more control you have, the more tempting it is to trust in it. Uh, but I, I think we we really do, like you said, need a, a a sort of a stipulation on this, that this is not a sort of an us versus them. Uh, anytime you you start to divide law and gospel, and the law is only ever directed to people outside of you, you're not looking at the law the right way. If you you can actually look at the Ten Commandments and not feel like some kind of sinner or another, you're not really looking at the law or you're not really looking at yourself. The law is given to all, but the gospel is directed specifically to you and to all. So inside of this, again, we can find the places where we have to confront our own idolatry, where we have to confront our own infatuation with wealth, and recognize these things aren't going to help. And in fact, the more I try and cling to control or power or mammon or wealth or whatever word you want to use to describe the same idolatry, you're you're reaching at something that can't ultimately save. But the mm. cure for this, again, isn't sort of giving up all your money. It's receiving Jesus. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. And I mean, that receiving Jesus certainly has something to say with what you do with your money, but just that outward act of of giving it all away that's that outward act is not the matter of salvation it is that matter of receiving jesus in faith and then from that faith do flow all kinds of works james has has mentioned a lot of them throughout his epistle but but we want to keep things central I had a oh the matter of of this you know you rich and not being an us versus them is it i, I think it's i don't think i'm making this up it's in the, the first commandment of the large catechism where Luther singles out mammon particularly as yes. an idol. And and he says that you either are rich or you desire to be rich. Am I remembering that right, Pastor Goodman? That sounds
1: right. Um, but it's, it's <laughs> if, if rec- not, you heard it here I'm first. I'm willing to trust <laughs> you. It's wise either way. Um, I'll, I'll credit it to either Luther or Apple. Um, either way, it's a 50-50. It's a great cup. Uh, but it's a recognition um, that, that, just pouring out the things that you would trust in from the the cup leaves the cup empty. It still needs to be filled with gospel. Everybody has to trust in something and simply not having mammon to trust in, it just leaves you with nothing to trust in. And so even if you don't have a lot of wealth, uh, you want to, uh, you you see it though, even in just how quickly we, uh, here in America, would sort of want to identify with the poor of the gospels. When you sort of look at things in perspective of if, if you were to show my life uh, as meager as I might try to describe it to anybody that followed Jesus at that time, they would be astounded that I live like a Mm. Mm. king.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, Again, to keep all these things in perspective. Now, moving forward, as he, he continues to disentangle us from these riches to show us just how futile they are, as he, he gets into verse 2, we get language that sounds very familiar to us from the Sermon on the Mount. And this has been true throughout this epistle of James. He's constantly reflecting upon the words of Jesus there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Take us into that, that connection we've got in verse 2.
1: Sure. So in James chapter 5, verse 2, we read, Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. He lays the present tense to what Jesus warns us about in the Sermon on Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and end steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the present tense of James, is, again, it just just—it—it slams us with the law. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Look at the things break in this world. Is this ultimately where you want to put your trust? Uh, because there are treasures laid up for you in heaven. First and foremost, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who uh, to, to, to recognize the kingdom of God is to recognize that it is to be near Jesus, uh, that, that heaven is not just a cloud where you get all the things that you want. Heaven is where Jesus is. To 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 ultimately look to the kingdom of God is to look to God himself, but more. Uh, it's it's a call to see your neighbor in Christ as a gift from God, too, that you can actually take with you. I mean, there, there's that, that sort of common um, theme, you can't take anything out of this world with you. But I think it was Pastor Fisk that first showed this to me, that there are people you can take with you. There are treasures you can take with you. In fact, I, I Rejoice that, uh, that the two uh, of my children who who were lost to miscarriage have been laid up for me in heaven as treasures. I rejoice to to be married to a faithful spouse who, casting her burdens upon the Lord, will know the last day and the resurrection therein, and I'll see her there. Uh, that that we lay up multiple treasures in heaven, and so to put your heart there is to fix your eyes outside of yourself and on first God and then your neighbor which is the fulfillment of the law that is accomplished in the gospel, in Jesus, who will actually get you from here on earth to the kingdom where all your treasures have been laid up for you, again, present tense, again, by Christ, because it's passive in us and it's active in him. It's a distinction, again, between true faith in Christ our Lord and in idolatrous faith trust or false faith in in mammon, which is ultimately always just a worship of self. Because if this is just a question of control, and this is just a question of power, and we want to sort of measure this out inside of God's creation with wealth, well, that makes it a zero-sum game really quickly. That makes it very selfish very quickly, because there are a finite amount of resources in this world. E- even in an economy where we, we joke about just printing more money. I mean, if there's, if there's $100 and I have 75 of it, that means that there's only so much that you can have. Uh, when we start to make mammon our God, there is no good for neighbor that I can rejoice in, only myself. Um, the more we sort of want to focus on ourselves and what we can acquire, well, it's got to come from somewhere. And this is what the seventh commandment warns us about because we know where it should come from. It should come from our neighbor. I want to take it from you. And so our Lord has to remind us, no, thou shalt not steal. You should fear and love God so that you do not take your neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, but instead help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. When we when we look to wealth over well Jesus we can't possibly look to the good of our neighbor we can't possibly look to to Christ for help we're so busy trying to control it by taking from everyone that we ourselves become the real god of the of the picture
0: i i think i, I really appreciate the way you connected this to that text from Matthew six, where Jesus talks about treasures on earth and treasures in heaven, and to recognize that when our treasure is in heaven in Christ, there too is, is our neighbor in Christ. And, and that's, I mean, that's going to be a key connection that we're going to make toward the end of this text as well, that, that it is only with our eyes, focused on on christ that our eyes then can truly be focused on our neighbor and mammon particularly would take our eyes off of both of those things our eyes off of of the one true god as our only source for help in time of need and it takes our eyes off of our neighbor because it does mammon puts all the focus entirely on me how can i secure things for myself for my future and and in order to do that, like like you said, well, how am I going to do that for me? I'm going to do that by stepping on you, by taking what is yours, and making it mine. But when I have the riches that Christ has given me, when my treasure is there with Him, then then my neighbor too becomes becomes this treasure as well, one who I can now truly look at, and and rather than using him for for a a, a means to my end now I can actually serve him truly in love.
1: Right. And that's such an important distinction. I think a lot of it gets lost in the idea that Christians should care for our neighbor. And this is always given as a law thing instead of a gospel. And of course it is a law. The seventh commandment says care for your neighbor's possessions and income. But if all you have is the law, you almost always end up begrudging about it because I know I should care for the poor, other people, but that always means I have to give up something of mine. The gospel is to recognize not just that I should care for the poor by giving them my treasure, but it's that Jesus says the poor are the treasure themselves. They are purchased in one, not with gold or silver, but with the holy and precious blood, the innocent suffering and death of God. That that he who was rich for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That's uh, 2 Corinthians. That we don't measure wealth and the things of this world. But in the price paid for us, and so um, our neighbor isn't just somebody we know we have to serve, but it's somebody worth serving
0: because of because of what Christ did. I mean that that's the Second Corinthians eight passage that think. this is what He did. Look, his wealth was given to you, His riches were given to you, and and again that that takes this and makes it not just a matter of of money. And wealth, but it broadens it again into this this matter of idolatry. And we're not saying that to minimize the importance of money and and the need to recognize where money and mammon may have become an idol, but to recognize that this isn't just some kind of self-justification, but this is really about receiving Jesus, receiving what you need in him
1: right it's one of those things that uh, the prosperity gospels and like all of the economists that want to write a christian book on on money always sort of mention jesus talks about money more than anything else but when he does it's almost never just money it's it's usually that it's idolatry which points us away from eternal life and, and towards the things that are already falling apart in this world like honestly the the wealth of this world the the riches have rotted your garments are moth-eaten, present tense, which means the things that you're turning away from God for and trying to grab onto, they're already falling apart. Like, is that actually the thing that you think is going to save you? And at what expense, at what cost? You're you're laying aside the price that was already paid. You're laying aside the people that it was already paid to purchase to grab hold of something that you yourself are terrified is going to fall apart because you're watching it fall apart. Mm -hmm.
0: Rather cling to Christ. Yeah, no, that's that's a one to catch that present tense is so key. These these things already have fallen apart. They are rotted. They are moth-eaten. Why place your trust in them? You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. It is Wednesday, July 1st, and we're looking at James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 with Pastor Harrison Goodman. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Goodman, prior to the break, we left off. After verse two, in verse three, James continues with this very strong language. And again, notice the present tense. Your gold and silver have corroded. This is this has happened already. They have corroded. Their corrosion is evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is very, very strong language. To imagine, imagine gold and silver corroding. Precious metals that that shouldn't corrode. And yet, even these, he says, even these. Are, are right before your eyes showing their worthlessness.
1: Right. Uh, and it's a mark against us that, that the corrosion of the gold and silver, the things that we are convinced will save us, actually just they give us a glimpse to the corrosion of our own flesh. Uh, it's not that money is bad, but it's a recognition that if you want to put your trust in that which is breaking, you can't really be shocked when it can't support your weight. It's like trying to run and do jumping jacks on an old rickety bridge that you're afraid won't hold. Like, should you really be so shocked when you fall through it? Uh, But the problem comes that, well, right along with fear always seems to be trust and love. Uh, And so when we, when we fear the loss of mammon, for some reason we can't help but also love and trust in it all the more, in the same way that we really should have been called to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And it plays itself out in this almost predictable fashion because, well, we really start to become what we worship. And it's sort of like pets and owners that start to look alike uh, over spending too much time together. Uh, when you worship something, more and more you are shaped into a little version of that. And so if you're true God is mammon, is wealth, well, you'll eventually actually start to look like it. And you see the people who have given themselves only over to wealth. And so they look very flashy. They look very on top of the world. And it's fleeting. It's not true peace. It's not true happiness because money can't buy that but you see it in other places too you see it in sadly those whose gods are illicit substances who deteriorate even as they they bow to altars of of drugs and alcohol uh they they start to look like the very thing that they put all their trust in you see it in those who uh who, who worship themselves uh vanity that that this constant i uh desire to look good in front of other people uh, inside of social media inside of even just uh, our neighbor that that we are entirely consumed by it and we start to look every bit as shallow as the things that we worship are uh, you really do become what you worship and that's not a good thing if you're worshiping something that can't actually save and so to put all of your trust in gold and silver that have corroded. well, you're, you're seeing the marks of those in your own flesh. You cannot lay up for yourself enough gold and silver to save you from the grave. You have laid up treasures that cannot endure on the last day uh, but will ultimately fall apart. Uh, the yeah. corrosion is just it's a witness. it's a sermon of the wages of sin that is death that, that you would put all of your trust in something that, that cannot save. it's, it's a reminder. That this world—it's busted up by sin. Sin breaks stuff, and so to to put your trust, uh, sinful trust, in that which. God gives and calls a good gift, but you try and rip from his hands. Well, it's a recognition that this creation isn't all there is, uh, that, that the God who joins it to save us from it and from ourselves wishes to bring you into the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, a new creation. Uh, and he calls us to look to this new creation, not then measured in wealth, but in terms of that which bestows the new creation, even the waters of baptism. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that the connection to you become what you worship i think is is a, a wonderful one and and as you were describing it you know we see the effects that it has upon you as an individual sometimes in very physical ways as as you said but to to take it back to what we were saying on the the other side of the break that it it doesn't only affect you personally but then it affects how you view your neighbor and and so to you know this this matter of of you become what you worship isn't just something that that we're making up but it is it is one of the images that the scriptures use for it so from psalm 115 let's see who writes this one doesn't say who writes this one the psalmist writes this one he says their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands they that is the idols they have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So to become to, to become what you worship, when, when you're worshiping an idol, whether that is a statue as, as the psalmist has in mind here, or whether it is mammon or vanity or, or any number of things, you lose your mouth you lose your eyes you lose your ears you lose all of your ability to interact with the outside world to tr- the world to to truly interact with your neighbor and you're left with yourself i mean it's taking us back to that same idolatry the idolatry of self and and now i have i have no way to look at the true god and i have no real way to look at my neighbor and all i can do is is see myself because i become this idol that I've worshiped. It's really a a very, it's a very terrible picture. And that's the picture that James is painting.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant.
0: Well, you, you, you put me onto it, Pastor Goodman. I just, (laughs) and, and James and James too. I mean, so James is, again, it's, I think it's, it's easy for us to, to read this, you know, come you rich weep and howl because of all the miseries that are coming upon you. And, and to see, you know, when I, when I worship, mammon. This is the bad stuff that's going to happen to me here and now and eternally. So I'm going to avoid it for my sake, but James won't, won't let us just use this, you know, look at ourselves and all this. He's going to point our eyes back to the love for the neighbor. And I, I think that's where verse four comes in. He, he starts talking about the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. Those wages are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters too have reached the ears of the Lord of Hosts. So these, what what what's the picture here, Pastor Goodman?
1: There's there's two ways to look at it, and both are are good. Uh, but but recognize that your selfishness is happening at the expense of somebody else. That your mammon worship is actually bringing about harm to somebody else, that the Seventh Commandment, not just to not take from your neighbor, but also to help and support your neighbor, uh, it it recognizes that there's more going on than you and your desires. And when you give yourself wholly over to your desires, like you said, with eyes, you can't see your neighbor anymore. Um, And so inside of this, you stop seeing your neighbor as somebody worthy of mercy. And, And, well, that's because this stopped being about mercy a long time ago. If this is no longer about the true God, if this is no longer about Christ who regarded you a sinner and had mercy on you and gave his life to redeem your own, well, this is no longer about grace. This is about works. And more than about works, this is about me and not about you. So the question inside of this is, what's making you not see your neighbor as somebody worthy of mercy? More often than not, it it is rooted in the idea that you're not looking for mercy yourself. Uh, We see it even in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And we always want to make this law. That that, Well, because I have a grudge in my heart or I'm still angry at somebody from the sixth grade, uh, God could not possibly die on the cross for me even though I'm still angry. The question isn't of the law, it's of the gospel. Does all forgiveness come from that cross where Jesus died for me 2,000 years before I could ever be angry in the first place? And if he died for me, did he also die for my neighbor? Because if all forgiveness comes from the cross, we should be looking to Jesus for all forgiveness. To, to say there is no forgiveness for my enemy is to say there's no Jesus who died on the cross. And that, that is the real danger. Uh, when, when you start to see your neighbor as somebody who doesn't deserve mercy uh really the first thing that that you should look at is whether or not you're self-justifying yourself uh whether or not you yourself are are looking for mercy because our lord is is well merciful and and, uh, and gracious and, and desires nothing other than giving mercy. Uh, that's the first picture but but there's a second one and again it's sort of in the language that, that James uses that sort of reminds us of that which goes on inside of um, Christian teaching uh, and so he talks about the laborers who work in the harvest field. He talks about the harvesters themselves and, and we know Jesus himself says uh, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly that I would send workers into the harvest. Uh, We we also recognize uh, that Paul would tell Timothy that the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And this is something that Luther, and I believe in the table of duties of the small catechism, uh, connects to the fact that, well, your pastor is somebody that you should actually take care of, that that he's been given to you to speak God's word to you, that he is that which was sent out into the harvest to, to gather in God's treasure, the wheat, uh, that when mammon becomes your God, uh, well, why would you care about the gospel? Why would you care about those who would speak for it? This isn't just sort of a a selfish employee of of an institution that it should survive for the sake of being an institution. But this is just a simple question. Uh, Should on the worst day of your life, your pastor ever have to say, I'm sorry, you're going through that, but I have to go to my real job now? Um, Or should they have the freedom to say, my needs are taken care of so that I can really only look to yours? So that when you call me, I'll never have a, another job to go to, but that I can actually focus on the harvest at hand instead of my own needs. Uh, when, when the church has been attacked monetarily, uh, understand that sometimes the gospel gets preached less. Understand the cries of the harvesters do reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. And well, if he sends them and he wants them working, that's actually something we should we should care about
0: mm-hmm. that that title that james uses here lord of hosts is not not one you see too often in the new testament but it is a very common one in the old testament and it it tends to emphasize the lord's power his might you you could translate it in the old testament at least as the lord of armies so that that this is the one who will hear the cries of of those who are being neglected because of the worship of mammon? Whether that is the harvesters in in fields, quite literally, that that you're not paying because you're you're worshiping mammon, or whether it's the harvesters, those the Lord sends into his his harvest field to to preach the good news. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the the one who who is the Lord God Almighty is sometimes I think the way that it's translated. He's the one who's going to hear these cries that's that's not a well it's not an empty threat if i can put it that way
1: no and it's 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 not a subtle one either <laughs>
0: that's right that's right yeah i mean that's one of those you know you just don't lord of hosts is not a title you hear very often in the new testament and so i don't i don't think james mention of it here is is by accident by any means he's he's again reminding his his hearers his readers of the danger of of worshiping mammon, of any idolatry that would turn our eyes away from both God and our neighbor. And he really starts to get to the heart of the problem. As, as we've been saying all along, Pastor Goodman, he gets to that heart in verse five, where he talks about living on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and, and they've fattened their hearts. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That, that again, this matter of mammon, is all about the the care of self, the seeking after passions to, to use his language from, from other parts of the epistle. That's what's at the heart of all of this mammon worship.
1: Absolutely. Um, as we we sort of start to go forward in this, uh, we, we recognize that there are days more important than, well, the plans that I have for now in my personal five-year plan, uh, that, that to live on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence is to be focused on self. Again, the issue isn't money. It's the self-indulgence. It's to be excessively lenient towards passion, to lean in to desire. Um that, that uh, when, we, when we sort of lean farther and farther into ourselves and our sin, recognize that you lean farther and farther away from God. A- and this day of slaughter um, is something maybe we can talk about if there's time, but it, even just on the surface is not a, a nice sounding day, uh, that there might come a day where you might have to give an account of these things. Uh, for us, we would talk about it in terms of mortal sin, Uh, not the way the Roman Catholics would, where they would sort of pick certain sins and say, now these are the really bad ones. Everything else is venial. It's not as bad. It's not that it's good, but you know, it's not as bad as this one. Uh, For us, the mortal sin uh, inside of our confessions is the one that finally pulls you from faith. It's the idea that sin pulls you farther from God. And there will come a point if you lean into these things where you'll just Give yourself over to those passions where where you'll just sort of throw up your hands and say, who needs forgiveness for this anymore? It's the sin that would ultimately rip you from faith. And so mortal sin for me might not be the same as mortal sin for you. And mortal sin for me is probably a sin that I've committed a thousand times before, but that each time pulls me farther and farther away from our Lord. To live on earth in luxury, luxury isn't necessarily an awful thing. It's self-indulgence. It's the idea that, that you would actually uh, look for, well, that comfort in self and in the things of this day, that rather than focused on the day of slaughter, you would be focused on the pleasures of now.
0: Hmm. So we've, we've got just under 10 minutes here, Pastor Goodman, which I think is enough time to to look at the day of slaughter as well as spend plenty of time on verse six, because there's a a really important thing we want to bring out there. So, so what is this day of slaughter that James is talking about?
1: The short answer is, I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah chapter 30, uh, talks about it to us explicitly where Isaiah contrasts both a day of healing and a day of destruction. Uh, Jeremiah grabs hold of it himself as well uh, when there is a, a slaughter for sinners whose hearts are far from the Lord, uh, but then goes on to talk about uh, the raising up of a righteous branch. The day of slaughter uh, can be seen as the cross where Jesus himself was slaughtered for our sins. He was the lamb without blemish or spot, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And inside of this cross, I can see both the healing of the nations where sin is undone where death is destroyed, but I can also see the destruction. I I can see the sun blotted out from the sky. I can see the fullness of what my idolatry actually looks like, the the damage that my sins that I so try to self-justify actually do. And I can also see uh, those who would mock the Lord on the cross uh, as they they flee from the, the forgiveness offered there and the destruction that ultimately Goes that way, you can see the day of slaughter as the cross, but you can also see it ultimately as the judgment day, which the cross ties us toward. Um, that the, the judgment day, the last day when our Lord will come to separate the sheep from the goats, where uh, He will lay waste where he will uh, cast a dispersion without refuge, where he will cast out those who have, have run from him, ultimately, even as he gathers in his elect, the sheep, those who have clung to him in hope over their time. Uh, but I think it's maybe even a good thing that we don't lean too hard to one or the other because these two things are connected. The, the passion of our Lord and the last day are connected. And in fact, that's what actually lets me look forward to the last day is that I don't have to look to it in fear as if I would be worried that I have not done enough. I can readily acknowledge that I haven't done enough. I can readily acknowledge that I am a sinner, but I can look to the cross where Jesus died for my sin. I can look to the empty tomb where he has risen from the dead. I can look to my baptism where I am united with him both in his death and most certainly in his resurrection, and then rejoice in the coming day of slaughter, uh, because I know I'm on the side that gets the healing. I know that the righteous branch was raised up for me. I, I know that uh, the blood spilled uh, on Calvary was that which was given to cover my sins, that looking forward in hope, uh, my life would be about more than luxury and self-indulgence. But I might continually pray, come Lord Jesus. It's a much better approach than simply looking around to the panic, to the fears, to the the anxieties of this day where there's never enough and and recognize it's actually going to get better when Christ comes back. And that's Mm -hmm. something to look forward to.
0: Yes, yes, it is. Rather than that, I mean, as James was, you know, you you fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. Rather than looking to the luxuries of this life for that that fattening, and finding out on that that last day, which which has, as you said, I mean, the connections to the last day and the cross are all over the place. Rather than than looking to that that as as the event of salvation, I'm just going to fatten myself right here now with with goods with riches that. Don't last, whatever that idol may be. And and James really then brings it all to a climax. And I, I think the day of slaughter is going to connect this. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Who is the righteous person?
1: The definite article helps. There really is only one. It's Jesus who fulfilled the law. Again, this isn't an us versus them. Uh, A wealthy people have trod on the poor people, and now we'll finally sort of get an idea of uh, social justice that will play itself out in a sort of a liberation of those who identify as poor. This is Jesus who I condemned, who by my sin I murdered, and thanks be to God, He did not resist Uh, Isaiah. Talks about this. He uh, he gave his back to those who strike, his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He hid not his face from disgrace and spitting. We we know that our Lord came into the cross uh, for me, uh, for for you, for all. So that as we we start to see Jesus, who is ultimately brought to all of that suffering not just as as that which would cut to the heart, but as that which would actually promise the sinners something more than just the things we can build in this world. This is really what Peter preached on Pentecost, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, he, he preached this Jesus whom you crucified uh, in Jerusalem. And, and we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 37, that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, what do we do? And Peter says... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That this is not simply a guilt trip that you people murdered the Lord, but this is this is a promise as well. The Lord was crucified for you. Uh, so that, that recognizing not only the damage that our sin has done, but the futility of all the things that we are trying to build in this world— We might rejoice in the fact that our Lord comes to bear hope, life, mercy, even for those who would condemn and murder him, uh, for Mm me.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, he he does not resist you. He he goes to this willingly for the sake of of these very people, for the sake of, of you. And of me. Uh, Pastor Goodman, with just about three minutes left, sum things up for us. Give us, uh, make sure we hear the, the good news that's here in this text of, of vivid images. What What's the good news for us as Christians?
1: The good news for us as Christians is that we don't simply identify as wealthy or poor, but as the sinners that Jesus died for. Uh, as James speaks to the wealthy in this text, we can see not only uh, the, the danger, the warning against idolatry that that uh, is not simply directed to those who we have in our hearts where covetousness lives, but in ourselves. In other words, stop looking to the people who you are jealous of because you think they're rich and recognize that the simple fact that you're coveting what they have is a points against you and and that that you're worshipping mammon yourself, fine. See Jesus who did not resist but gave himself up for you, that in his poverty you would become rich, Uh, that that we would see a a glimpse of of the futility of, of chasing after the wealth of this world, but also we would continually be pointed back to the victory that we already have in Christ. So that just as in the present tense, you can see gold and silver corroding, wealth not saving, in the present tense, you can see your baptism now saving you. You can see your God being merciful to you, a sinner.
0: Hmm. Pastor Harrison Goodman is the pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas helping us this morning with James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6. Pastor Goodman, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks so much. Mammon riches so easily take our eyes off of the one true God and off of the neighbor and place them back onto ourselves. We're looking at ourselves. How how can I Fix myself? How can I secure my future? How can I build for myself something? And I become this idol that I'm worshiping without eyes for my neighbor, without ears to hear his cries, without lips to speak good news to him, instead, focused entirely on the self. And James tears that idol down. That idol is rotten, it is worthless, it is corroded right now, and it will be that way on the last day too. Instead, James directs our attention back to Jesus Christ, who freely, willingly, did not resist evil, but gave himself up into the hands of sinners that he would die for those sinners, to give them his heavenly riches. That is where your true treasure lies, a treasure that will never decay, will never be eaten by moths, but will last for all eternity, and it is yours in Christ.